Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. As of August 2nd, we have resumed in-person worship services on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are committed to the health and safety of our families and will continue to offer our simultaneous live stream at youtube.com slash area 10 faith community. We hope you'll join us at the Bird Theater again soon, but in the meantime, we're providing the best possible online experience we can for you. Now, on to this week's message. About 1,967 years ago, a guy named Paul wrote a letter to a church in the city of Corinth in in Greece. And this is, um, I want to read to you the section of what he said. We're going to dive into it, but before I get into all the things we're going to say about it, I I want you to have it in the background. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verse 19. We'll put it on the screen. He said this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means... I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. If you were to consider the most influential people in the history of the world, and you made a list, who's the top influencers that changed the world more than anyone, who would you put on that list? Maybe a a president, a a Caesar, maybe, maybe Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, somebody like that, somebody who who shaped the course of history for a country or a region of the world in some period of time. I think you'd have to put Jesus at the top of the list of the most influential person that ever walked on the planet because of all the things that we can now trace back to him, and not just religion, but I mean things like science and medicine and and higher education and all the stuff that's kind of happened in the history of the world that really, if you'd start tracing it back, owes its existence to Christians who were following Jesus. So Jesus had a massive impact on the history of the world. But I think if you're going to go, say, top five most influential people in the world, you have to put Paul on the list. And maybe you didn't think when you came in here, you never thought, oh yeah, the Apostle Paul, one of the most influential. But really, Paul is the guy who takes the message of Jesus and starts spreading it around the Mediterranean. Christianity goes from, you know, a few dozen, a few hundred, a few thousand followers to about 30 million people in about 300 years, largely built on the work that Paul was doing, going and starting churches around Greece and Turkey and some other areas around the Mediterranean. Um, So he's hugely influential to the culture, even things that we live with today that we don't even realize came from, from him or from that, but he it had a massive influence, and we're still feeling that influence in the way we live today. And one thing I notice, if you look at Paul and the things he goes on about in his letters, like the one we're reading here in the letters to the church in Corinth, is that Paul is extremely focused on the message of Christ. He's focused on the message and the meaning of Jesus' life. Yes, the things like the Sermon on the Mount and how he taught us to live and not be angry and how we deal with lust and how we deal with coworkers and all these kinds of things. But, but the heart of the gospel message for Paul, as you see him repeat it over and over in his, in his teachings, is that Jesus 
was a man who was actually God as well, man and God together, and he lived on earth, he died, he was crucified, and in doing that, he was crucified for our sins, for all the things that you and I do wrong, even now, thousands of years later, that Jesus died for our sins, and he came back from the dead. And if we will follow him and be his disciples, we also, when we die, will actually be resurrected and come back from the dead and live eternally with God in his kingdom in paradise. That is a life-changing message in the ancient world where life expectancy is short and where life can be tragically short and brutal at times and people die in horrible ways and you have to kind of make meaning out of the short life that you have. But I think that's also a life-changing message for us now. Because the reality is, in, 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 and this is one of these things we don't talk about a lot, we don't like to think about a lot, but the reality is all of us are going to die. When we come to the end of our days, and maybe it's quietly in a hospital room with the machine that beeps, and maybe our loved ones are all gathered around or something like that, I, I hope in that moment that when, I, when I'm there, I hope it's not a surprise to me. Like, wait a second. You know, I hope I don't have this moment like, wait, I, I thought that, I just thought this was going to go on forever. Because it's definitely not going to go on forever. And, and we know that. We just don't talk about it. We don't like to think about it. But it's true. The, the, the light eventually is, is, is snuffed out, right? And then, and then we're gone. Um, and if the reality of the world is that your life is short and then you'll die, if the reality is and then you live again because of what Jesus has done, that radically changes how you think about death. And it radically changes even how you're living life now and, and whether you get what you want or what you need, like that is a complete game changer in the history of the world. And in the ancient world, when people latched onto the message of Christ that they're going to live again, it was a game changer for them. This is why it grew and spread so rapidly across the ancient world is because people started to get this, oh, wait a second, there's more. And, and, and not that I can know beyond a shadow of a doubt, because you're going to have doubts, but I can know for fairly certain that this is going to happen, that there is a future for me. And that was powerful back then, and I think it's powerful now. That was the message that Paul was bringing to the world and, and, and sharing, and, and lives were being changed because of it. But I don't want you to notice his, just his, his, his message that he was giving, because we, we study that and we talk about it in here. I want you to notice Paul's methods, because that's what I, I read to you. His method is, I will make myself a servant of all. He says, even though I'm free... I'm going to make myself a servant to all in order that I might win some of them. And in order that some of them, the light bulb will come on. So for the Jews, my Jewish brothers and sisters, I will become very Jewish to them. I will talk to them about the Jewish laws and the Jewish leadership and the Jewish history and all of that stuff. I will talk to them and tell those stories in synagogues so that I can point them to Jesus, who is actually the Messiah, the fulfillment that they've been waiting for their entire lives. I will point them there so that they can know God through Jesus. He becomes very Jewish in that sense. And to non-Jews, when he's speaking to the Greeks, you see Paul. Paul's not quoting Jewish things to Greek people. He quotes Greek poets and Greek scholars, like he's into the Greek stuff. Okay, these are my Roman sort of pagan non-Jewish friends. I will talk to them about those things and quote their, you know, if he was alive today, I imagine Paul would quote, you know, Bob Dylan or Drake or something. Like he would quote somebody's thing that, that you would know now and he would say, hey, this is the culture that you're in. I'm going to learn it so that I can speak it to you and, and help you see the greater realities that you can find even in your 
own culture. This is what Paul does. This is his method. He's like, I will go as far as I have to. He's not going as far as sinning. He still gives these qualifiers. I live under the law of Christ, that kind of thing. But he's going far to reach people, to people who are weak. He doesn't flex how strong he is. To, to people who are struggling, he doesn't say, I've got it all together. Like he, he will walk with people in, in, in empathy and walk with them in their situation in order that, and this is his, this is his mission in life, in order that these people will come to know God. This is what he's all about. So if you want to know who Paul is and why he was so influential, you've got to look at his, his message and his, uh, and, and, and his methods of how, of how he did it. He gave up um, all he had to reach others. He gave up the possibility of wealth. He gave up privilege. He was a pretty accomplished guy before he became a follower of Jesus. He gave up even having a family. He was traveling around so much planting churches. He didn't uh, have the time and all that to raise a family. He gave up the titles. He gave up the good life in order to have, to, to see people come to Jesus. And this challenges me. And it doesn't just challenge me professionally because he's a minister and I'm a minister and like I'm just looking at somebody who's did kind of was doing my job back then and, and I don't go, wow, you know, back then people were really good at doing the job. It challenges me just as a Christian, just as a disciple of Jesus, just as someone who's like, I'm going to follow Jesus. That's where he went with it. That, that's, that's how serious he was about the mission he was on. And it challenges me when I'm not serious about the mission I'm on. Um, it, it, it's, it's challenging, and I hope it challenges you too. Because I think that you're on a mission too. If you're a follower of Jesus, and I know that's not everybody in this room, but if you are, if you'd say, Jesus is my, my, my everything, I'm, I'm a disciple of him, I'm trying to live in obedience to him and walk with him, then you're on a mission also. You're, you're called to be a disciple, to learn how he lives and live that way, and then in, recruit, inspire, challenge, reach other people to join you in that mission, to, you know, as some, I guess some preachers say, like, to make heaven crowded. Like, you're, you're, we're all on a mission here to help other people come to know God through, through Jesus Christ. Um, and that, is, that, that mission, that reality has become so much more real to me. The message of Christ, the methods, uh, has become so much more real to me over the last year or so. Because I see um, the church in America... Is, has, has struggled over the last year. And, and honestly, um, what I've seen is that, it, and this has been happening over decades, I think in an effort to reach people, an effort to apply what Paul says, the church has said, um, I'm going to become like all people to reach all people. And, and in some ways, the church has watered down the truth. The church has said, oh, people don't want Jesus. What they want is five steps to a better marriage. Okay, let's do a sermon on five steps to a better marriage. People want, you know, here's a better sex life. Here's how to make money. Here's how to uh, have your kids be more whatever, obedient or nicer or whatever. Like, we, we've gone down all of these roads as a church in order to build a bridge to the culture. And I understand why we do it, especially when you read what Paul just said. You go, man... Um, what I, what I think is, as I, as I anticipate talking to people, I don't think that everybody comes in here on a Sunday morning and goes, um, man, I'm really struggling with despair and I need hope in the gospel and I really want to know why the gospel speaks to my life today. Uh, maybe some of you came in that way, but I, I think a lot of people, when they walk into a church, especially for the first time, are sitting there going, um, my marriage is in trouble, my kids won't listen, job is, is rough right now, um, rent isn't happening, or like I'm really satisfied and things are going really well and I'm just kind of like someone dragged me here and I'm kind of like, what is this about? Like, 
we're in a lot of different places. And so the church, in an effort to build a bridge to people who are in those places to the hope of the gospel, has in, in some ways kind of watered, watered down the truth and maybe pitched the message a little bit too low. And I'm hearing commentators on the church, and I listen and read this stuff over the last year or so, say that the church is struggling in, in the West right now. Um, and maybe it has been for decades, but the events of the last year and a half have accelerated that. And part of that is COVID. Part of that is, you know, um, racial tension and, and how people are responding to it or not and how they're responding to political tension or not or how they're handling economic tension or not, like how the church is speaking to these things. And, and I'm hearing commentators say the church is struggling there. And it's not just the church. I think um, medicine, science, higher education, political parties, all of these things have taken a bit of a beating as Americans have lost, maybe not just Americans, but we've definitely lost some of our trust in some of the institutions that we have previously uh, counted on. And, and honestly, as I, as I think about that in the church, um, all of that and the, and the turmoil and the uneasiness, um, it just pushes me deeper into my faith. Because why mess around? Like I'm, I'm up here reading an almost 2,000-year-old letter to you, and I, and I want to mine it for the gold. And I want to dig in and go like, what is true and what is real and what can I hold on to here? And, and even though this was written a long time ago, how does this speak to the current realities? And, I, and I'm doing that, and the reason I'm opening it up and the reason we talk about it every week and we do Bible studies and we have groups that meet and we have spiritual formation groups and there's small groups that are opening up and people are reading and praying together. The reason we do all these things as a church is we still believe that this holds the words of life, that this is actually uh, the, the, the true nature of reality and humanity is, is contained in here. Who we are, where we came for, what it's about, what, we're, what, we're, what we should be about, where it's all going. It is actually in here. We think this is the truth, and that's why we read it. And I understand I'm saying that in the midst of a culture that has a million competing philosophies. Uh, we live in a culture where it's basically like, hey, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you're going to die. Life's going to be short. You're going to die. You might as well just have as much fun for as long as you can because life is about being happy and having fun. And I understand that. America has an incredible amount of shiny trinkets. We may have the shiniest of shiny trinkets ever trinketed in the history of the world, but at the end of the day, they're still just trinkets. And the philosophies will eventually come up short and come up empty, empty. And the problems inside our souls in those places we don't like to talk about out loud, in that little voice in your head, in that quiet moment, that problem and that stuff is still there like a splinter in your mind. And the answers culture gives just doesn't satisfy. And I find myself like one of the disciples of Jesus at least in this way. Jesus is preaching and teaching and he says controversial things. If you're going to Jesus or if you're interested in talking to Jesus or learning from Jesus because he says the nice things that make you feel better, you got the wrong guy because often he would stand up and say weird things in front of large crowds of people, the kind of stuff people would have tweeted out back in the day and been like, hashtag Jesus, like did he really just say this? He said those things. At the height of his popularity, when thousands of people are around him, he says things like, if you're going to be my disciple, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Awkward. Right? 
And a bunch of people, Jesus is like, yes. The people are like, yes, tell me more. And he's like, uh, you know, God loves you. Yes, God loves me. It's so awesome. Also, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And people are like, and everyone's looking at their, I don't know, whatever footwear, sandals. Everyone's looking at their sandals like, did he just, that's okay. How about we, you guys want to go get lunch? Because I don't, this is weird. And crowds would desert Jesus. They'd walk away. Because it's weird and hard. And they don't get it. And, they, and they're not sure if they, or maybe they do get it and they don't like it. And this would happen. And at one point it happens in John chapter 6. And Jesus turns to his closest followers and he says, Hey, you guys, are you going to bail too? Are you going to leave? Everyone walks away when I say things. Are you guys going to leave? And Peter answers him, John chapter 6, verse 68. So Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And that, that phrase has come to my mind over and over over the last couple of years. Where am I going to go? Not just, not professionally. You have a job, sure, but not, not that. Personally, as a follower of Jesus, where am I going to go? Where else would I go? Jesus, you're, you're the only one who holds the words. You actually have the thing. You, you get it. You're the Holy One of God. And all of this other stuff's going to come up empty. And yeah, it may be hard and it may be awkward and you may say some weird things and it's going to be challenging to me and you're going to say things that in my current culture and context I don't like, but you hold the truth. And in a culture of competing ideas in America today, I still believe that's true. There's a, there's a rise in socialism. I had a friend here at the church tell me this week that uh, he went to a 4th of July party with friends he hadn't seen in a long time, and two of them were communists at a 4th of July party. Out, you know, like out loud. Like, and we're talking about it. Like that was like the thing. Um, I've, I don't know that I've heard that. Like, not at a 4th of July. I mean, in some corner of like, you know, a, a Discord server, yes. But like, it, in, in, out in the wild, like... That, that felt very like McCarthy 19. I was like, do you or were you at the party? Did you sign up that you were at the party of a, a, at, for, it's just weird, right? Um, there are competing philosophies. There always have been, and a lot of them are maybe louder with social media. But there's a lot out there. There's a lot of noise. And we're living in a weird culture of 2016's word of the year, post-truth. We're living in a weird culture of post-truth. And what is post-truth? I would argue, as we are seeing, what is post-truth is despair and anxiety. And we're living in a culture of despair and anxiety. And we have anxiety over racism. We have anxiety over the economy. And we have anxiety over COVID and all of the things that we're supposed to step up and not like and cancel. And I still find myself in the midst of all of that uneasiness as I stand on what looks like shifting sand of American culture. I still find myself going back to the rock and standing there going, where else would I go, Jesus? You alone hold the words. Where am I going to go? And, it's, and it's, it, it's a conviction that drives me and that drove Paul. It is that conviction that drove Paul to say, man, I'm going to become whatever it takes so that you can know this too. Uh, there's, there's still no better place to go thousands of years later. So I'm wondering if that conviction is settled upon you. Like are you, as you hear me say this, are you sitting there going, yeah, that's, that's my conviction too. Like this is it. Or are you still 
grasping at whatever culture says and hoping that it'll work. And I get it. Our culture offers some really cool things. And, and, they, and we're told that they work. Uh, yoga. I like yoga. It's, it's flexy and stretchy. And it, like, it makes my joints feel better. You know, like, I like that. It's good. I like Brene Brown. She has interesting things to say. She's very quotable. I've read her books, watched the TED Talk. It's great. Oprah, man, she's got a book club, apparently. Did you know? She's got a book club. Some good books on there. Really interesting. She, she casts herself as sort of a pseudo-spiritual thought leader in, in, in America, and in many ways, she, she is that, right? Um, all, all that stuff is interesting and shiny, but you go through it all, and, 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 and maybe you haven't reached this point yet, but at some point you go, like, this isn't quite it. Like, this isn't enough. And I hope in that moment that you go, let me go back to the ancient ways, let me go back to these ancient paths that have come before us because there's something, there's something there. Come back to Jesus because he actually gives you hope. He actually gives you purpose and he actually gives you meaning. And here's the key. The purpose and meaning that Jesus gives um, sticks with you even when suffering comes along. It is, a, it is a purpose that suffering cannot take away from you. And that's, that's huge. Um, I, I believe it. I have a conviction about it that, that the hope that we get in Christ um, is powerful and that will change you. If, and if, and it, it's that kind of conviction that compels Paul to speak up, that drives his, his method um, to give other people a reason to have hope as well and to become like his friends in order to reach them. Look at the last thing he said in that little section. I want to put it back up on the screen. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. What are the blessings of the gospel that he's talking about? When he says it's blessings, what is he talking about? Because if you believe today that the gospel is, I die, I follow Jesus, I was baptized into him, and then I go to heaven, period, that's it. If that's all you think it is, that's going to be a hard sell to other people. Like, hey, uh, Jesus solved the problem you're unaware of, he fixed it, and then when you die, you're going to go to heaven. We're good here. Like, I think that's true, but there's more to it. When you say the blessings of the gospel, I could probably go for a lot of them. Here's a couple that I picked. Number one, the gospel means our failures are not final. You've blown it. You've screwed up. I've done it. You've done it. We call it sin. We have all done stuff that was like, I failed at this. I wish I hadn't done this. I wish I hadn't said that. I, I made this one move this one time. That was bad. I did something yesterday, last week, this morning, whatever. Like, we all have stuff that's not great. And those failures those shortcomings, the ways we've blown it, these things are not final because of the gospel. It's not like all you get is consequences of bad behavior for your entire life and then you die and that's it, period, the end. It's like, no, stuff happens, you have some failures, but you die and there's a comma put there on your life and there's more, there's eternity. The gospel means, and that, that matters now, not just when you die. The gospel means that the ways we have blown it, that stuff is not final. It's not the, it's not the last word about who you are. Number two, the gospel means our failures are not fatal. Yes, there are consequences to our behavior. And when you burn it down with someone, you're going to have a strained relationship with that person maybe forever. Um, there are consequences and natural outworkings of the things that we do when we lie, when we cheat, when we steal, when we, when, we, when, we, when we hurt someone. There are consequences. 
but it doesn't have to destroy us forever. That God can and specializes in taking crooked roads and making them straight, redeeming our path. God does that. It's, it's powerful. Number three, the gospel means I have purpose. Uh, we are, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you are called to be a follower of him, and you're called to be a disciple who makes disciples. So you're called to be someone who follows Jesus and help other people to do so for etern- like for your life, for, with all of your life, for all of your life. That's the purpose. That's a mission that we're on. Now, if that mission does not sound compelling to you, if you're like, I don't know if I want my life to be about that, I would just ask what other mission are you going to put in its place because I find that very few people have a good answer to the purpose of their life. There's very few answers that people give of why am I here, what am I doing, that are useful, compelling, or good. The gospel gives us that. It says, hey, this is what life actually is, and this is what we're here for, to honor God, to glorify him, to bring other people along with us. That is a purpose. And that purpose endures no matter what's going on in the economy or with my family or with all the things that are going on around. Number four, the gospel means I have community. Uh, There's such a lack of community and culture. Uh, As Americans and as people in the West get more and more freedom, we end up draining the buckets of purpose and draining the buckets of community in our lives. And we have this overflowing bucket of freedom. I can do whatever I want. I just don't have a lot of people to do it with. And I can't find anything worth doing. This is kind of where we have landed as a culture and kind of the path that we're on. And I'm hoping there's going to be a course correction in culture. But I think... The gospel points us to and brings us into community. It brings us into a group of people that are with us on the journey. A lot of people plant churches to reach lost people. That's why in 2008, we started this church in this theater, is that people were far from God and we want to help people know God. I'm in on that. I want to reach lost people. I want to see people in the city, for the city, people in Richmond come to know Christ and and turn their lives towards him. And I've seen that happen with, with lots and lots of people over the last 13 or so years. But the other reality is, I planted a church in the city because I need community as well. I need gospel community. I need people who are like on this mission together. And, and, and I can walk with them towards Christ. Um, it, it's, it, I, I need it. You, you need it. We need people that we can look at each other and go, we're not crazy and we're not alone. We're, we're following this unseen God into eternity. Number five, the gospel means I have stability. I have stability. And, and this is the kind of thing I was mentioning earlier that's been so needed over the last year. As, as the, the, the sands start to shift, as the ground un, underneath you seems uneasy, as all the things that you count on, you can't count on during all of the turmoil and frustration and rioting and just the, the cultural malaise and, and, and time that we're in, um, where is the stability to be found? What is the thing you can stand on and say, this is solid? And the gospel provides that because it has endured and it has provided solid ground for people of all sorts of culture for thousands of years now. They've stood on this and believed it to be true. As things get crazy around you, what do you cling to? Writer Andrew Peterson, a songwriter, and he wrote a song for his son, I guess, as he was leaving home or something. And, I, and as uh, one who has my oldest son about to leave home in about five weeks, this song is wrecking me, all right? Um, 
Nonetheless, I'll give you just one piece of, of the verse. The song is called, You'll Find Your Way. And listen to the verse, he says, Go back to the ancient paths, lash your heart to the ancient mast, and hold on, boy, whatever you do, to the hope that's taken a hold of you. Go back. I love that. Lash your heart to the ancient mast. You tie yourself to the boat in the storm. And not just anyone, the ancient one, the path that has been cut before you to the hope that's taken hold of you, that God, that God got a hold of you and you hold on to him. This isn't just a challenge for a boy leaving home or whatever from father to son. or thing. This is for all of us. This is, that's where I'm trying to be right now. I'm trying to lash my own heart to the ancient mast as culture gets real dumb all around me. The gospel is this thing I'm trying to lash my heart to when things go nuts. And so when things go crazy, where will you stand? The gospel becomes a thread we hold on to, the narrative thread that pulls us through the story, through the ups and downs. In times of prosperity, I hold on to Christ. In times when things are not going well, I hold on to Christ. It is the ancient mast. It matters to us in good times and in bad. I heard it, someone use this illustration. I, I, I thought it makes sense. Have you ever seen... Um, People used to have them on their desks, uh, maybe not so much anymore, and I don't even know if anybody has desks anymore, but Newton's cradle, you've probably seen this thing, right? So you, you, you pull the ball at, at one end and it goes, and then it kind of hits, and then it knocks the one on the other end out, and they kind of go back and forth. It's, it's a little bit mesmerizing, which is probably why people don't have it on their desk. They got no work done. You can just watch this thing go all day long. Um, here's the thing about it, though. It's moving... It appears to be only moving on the right and on the left, on the, on the far ends. It's swinging wide, swing wide. It just keeps going. All the energies pass through the middle, and the ball in the middle, it doesn't look like it's moving at all. In, in some ways, the ball in the middle has lashed its heart to the ancient mast, <laughs> and it is just in place while everything swings wildly around it. And I thought, that's a really good picture for who we, we should be. We should be that, that, that constant presence that is not pulled in all the directions, um, that, that we stay, stay on, on path, on the path. But to do that, we're going to need some, as Paul will point us to, to, to be outward focused like that, to, to reach other people and point them to Christ, to be uh, stable. We're going to need a lot of self-discipline to stay there because there's so many things that are going to try to pull us off path. Listen to where Paul goes, 1 Corinthians verse nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 24. This finishes out the chapter. He says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Corinth is an athletic town, actually. Uh, it's, it's a town where uh, people would be into uh, sports, uh, the Greek games, the, the different, the pan-Hellenistic games or whatever. I don't, I don't think they had all the rings or whatever yet, but, but like the thing, they're, they're into sports and they're into, you know, running and, and competition. And if you ran um, in a competition and you won, maybe you cheer for your local Corinth guys, he competes against other cities. If, if they won, 
The prize, and you've probably seen this in, in drawings of the ancient world, is a wreath made of leaves. You win, here's your wreath. You do not get an endorsement from a shoe company. Well, Nike is a winged goddess of victory in that day, so you did get Nike's endorsement, but it did not come with shoes or money. You didn't get that, you didn't get a gold medal, you got some leaves in the shape of a wreath, and they put it on your head, and you took it home, and guess what happens to that? It turns to dust. Here's your prize, you won, here's your prize, enjoy it for the next couple days, because it's going to look worse and worse every day you have it, and eventually it's going to disappear. And Paul says, look, people will train hard for that. We, we have a, a prize that's greater than that, knowing Christ, wh- what it means for eternity. And so we need to be disciplined as well if we're going to, to, to reach that prize, that, that imperishable prize is the way he describes it. And he points you to the idea of an athlete. An athlete, especially if they want to win, an athlete can't just eat whatever, they can't just drink whatever, because they will pay for it in the way they perform. And if you want to have the edge, you need to be strict in your diet and in your exercise and in those things. You, and, and if you can be really strict and really put in the time and effort, there's a good chance that you're going, you're going to win. They have to have the self-control to basically out-train everyone else they're competing against. Now, when you say self-control, we're not just talking about I want to get at it right here. We're not talking about mind over emotion. Oh, I, you know, I just, I felt like eating the brownie, but I'm training, so I told my mind not to eat the brownie and, and that I have to train, I have to run that race tomorrow, so I'm not going to do it. Um, that's typically what we think about it, but um, it's not mind over emotion per se. It's a little more like, um, um, and it's not just like willpower over desire. It's more like um, mastering and, and really reshaping our desires. Um, culture will say, be self-controlled, which means think, use your brain to think to your emotion and like tamp it down and like don't do that, don't eat the brownie, don't do the thing, that's bad. Or culture will give us another idea which says you should never try to suppress your emotions, you should let them just fully go because that's who you truly are. So don't tell your emotions not to feel that or not to do that. Instead, you go with it, right? There's that whole aspect of our culture that says give full vent to your emotion. Suppressing is bad. You shouldn't ever do that to yourself. And there's all sorts of conversations that flow out of that in, in culture. And so you have these two ideas, use the mind to tamp down the emotion, or you have this other idea of you let emotions have full vent and let them go. And, 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 I, and Paul, I believe, is advocating for something different. He's saying it's not about, um, training is not um, just mind over emotion, and it's not emotion over mind in a sense. Training is really uh, addressing your desires. You have to address the desires inside, because if you suppress your desires, that doesn't actually work long term. You're eventually going to open the cookie jar and have a cookie. Um, and, and if you give full vent to your desires, you become a slave to them, and you always are chasing after those things that make you feel the dopamine hit. There's no freedom in that. Um, he advocates for something called self-control. Um, self-control, egokratia in, in, in Greek, means self-command or self-domination is, 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 kinda, is the word that he uses there. there. Um, getting command of our desires. And this is what I really appreciate about Christianity. Christianity always deals with desires. Because they're real, right? You want things. And it's not just emotional. It's not just thought. It's something else. There's a, there's a 
place inside of you that burns for things. You want them. You desire them. And Christianity addresses those and says, that's the level that you need to change. That's where the work needs to be done. You need to look at those things. You don't just need to think better or feel something different. You need to address the desires underneath all of that. It's different. Buddhism would say, basically, a a, a Buddhist belief would be something more like um, rise above your desires. In in a sense, like pretend you don't have them or, or you can defeat them by ignoring them or whatever. And it's like... No, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus goes, no, you have them. Let's, let's talk about them. This is why Jesus' teachings have endured for millennia is because they address us at the level of desire. So how do we, how do, we do that? How do we um, address our desires? How do we reorder our, our loves? Because that's really what we're getting at. Um, uh, St. Augustine pointed us to the idea that... that, um, that to be self-controlled is to actually be free. And, and he, he is famously quoted as saying, like, love God and do what you want. Which, if you take that out of context, people go, I'm going to go buck wild. Because he's saying, love God and do what you want. But it's actually, look, if you get, if you get the order right, if you love God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, like, like Jesus taught us, then when you do what you want, what you will want is the good, you will start wanting the good and right things. Your desires have been reordered. And so how do we do that? How do we reorder our desires and our, our loves? Lastly, this. Let me give this to you. Um, we need to do the things that stir our affections for God. You need to do the things that stir your affections for God. Um, this is praying. This is studying the scripture. This is gathering with Christians in worship. This is worshiping, singing. This is um, going on a walk where you see God's handiwork in nature and really taking time to thank him for that. This is serving other people, uh, maybe people who are in a bad situation, like coming alongside people and serving. This is giving generosity, generously to help others in need. This is how we stir our affections for God. Not all of those ways work for everybody, but some of those ways will work for you. Um, that typically there's different pathways people come to God and, and some of those are going to, to really light you up and, and stir your affections towards God. This idea that we would stir our affection when you get involved with something, this is what happens in all areas of life. You know this. If you love football, you will love it more if you watch videos about it, read blogs about it, play fantasy football, um, you know, watch all the replays, watch the Sports Center. You will love football more when you do that. If you, if you love literature, the more books you read, you go, oh, this is interesting. Oh, this kind of writer. And this, like, you get more into it. Our constant exposure to the thing uh, builds up our affection towards it and builds up our love for it. That is true positively. That is true negatively. If you, uh, if you start lingering glances too long, you start uh, watching things on TV that are a little more risque, uh, you start moving your mind into the space of lust, you will start lusting and lusting more. Like, more of that will continue on in your life. If you start obsessing over money and be- making money everything, you will start slowly making your way towards a very greedy place. This is what happens. The more exposure you have to something, you, this is the way the body works. You are shaped and reshaped by the constant exposure to the thing. And so... Um, Um, we as followers of Jesus, if we're going to reorder our loves and work on the level of desire inside us, we have to do the things that stir our affections for Christ. We have to enter strict training. And in some ways, church should feel like that. Like when we come together as 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 a body of Christ, it should feel like a little bit like a family reunion. Weird uncle and all. Like, and you can decide, we can all decide amongst us who's the weird uncle. That's fine. Uh, but 
church should also feel like, um, in a sense, going to the gym. Like, for the soul, a gym for the soul. Like, I'm here to do the work to grow and change. Um, the weird thing about going to the gym, and I, I've only, I'm not like a lifelong gym rat or anything like that. I've been going about, July would be two years, so about two years. Um, so when you go to the gym, you pick up dumbbells and barbells, and then you put them back down. You've seen this, right? So at no point outside of the gym has anyone over the last two years asked me to pick up a barbell or a dumbbell. It's a little disappointing. I feel like, you know, I've been really working at this. I've been training for this. And no one has asked me to pick one up. This is, and they just are like, this just isn't a useful skill. Like, I can move this thing like this, and nobody wants me to do this. Why? Why? I, I, and I can move more of this than I could last year. Why aren't you asking me to do it? Well, because it doesn't exactly translate like that, right? What I can do is probably have more endurance going up and down the stairs. That's useful. What I can do is maybe help my body to feel better as I get older. That's useful. What I, what I can do is maybe still be there for kids and grandkids and things down the road. Like, like, that's useful. These are reasons to do it. And maybe my clothes will fit differently and maybe I'll look better. But all of it is not about the exact thing you're doing in the room. It's about how it translates to life on the outside. And when we come together in, in church... Um, it's not about, you know, no one, exactly no one will come to you this week and say, can you explain 1 Corinthians 9 to me? I'm really struggling. No one will do that. Look, I'm a preacher and nobody does it to me. I mean, rarely. It would be like the greatest day in the world. Like someone came to me and they're like, you know, I've been really wondering about 1 Corinthians 9. I'd be like, actually, <laughs> finally, yes, I can lift that barbell. Yes, let's do it. You know, no. But what does matter and why we, why we dive into this is because I want to remember to be outward focused and to be thinking about people I know who need Jesus. I want to remember the blessings of the gospel, why this stuff actually matters. Um, and, I want to, and I want to have somewhere stable to stand and be reminded of that and, and focus on that when all around me is, is craziness. I want to remember to have discipline and take that level of strict training in my life so that I can stand um, in, in the midst of all the chaos. I want to remember to reorder my loves. That is useful outside of this room. So that's it. Um, next week, we're going to talk about maybe one of the biggest obstacles to us entering strict training and one of the biggest obstacles uh, about this idea of reordering our, our loves. Let's, let's pray together. God, um, the gospel is true and it's right and it's good and it is life-changing. And, and I pray that we get that, not just on an intellectual level, and not even just on an emotional level, but somewhere down in, in the center of our being, the, the, the soul, the, the desires, the will, um, somewhere down there, may we understand that um, the, the message is true, and the methods are good, and that there's, there's really life here. God... Um, my prayer for me, for my family, for really for everyone in this room is that we would um, lash our hearts to the ancient mast, that we will walk down those ancient pathways again. God, I, I, I believe what Peter said, where else, where else would we go? You alone hold the words of eternal life. God, I, I believe that. And so keep speaking those words to us.
and help us to continue to reorder our loves towards you. Thank you, God, um, for being a, a good God to us, for um, helping us when our failures seem f- fatal or final, that you, you do something different with that and you reorder them and, and make our crooked path straight. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.